Welcome to this teaching from the Refuge Church online experience. We're happy you're listening. As a reminder, at the end of all of our teachings, you'll have an opportunity to participate in the biblical practice of communion. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, consider gathering the elements, such as a piece of bread or a cracker, and your beverage of choice, and take a couple of minutes at the end to remember and participate in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We also encourage you to do it with at least one other person, if possible. Thank you. So this is week three of going through this series, uh, The Two Roads, based on the book, The Cure. Um, I'm not, that's not coming out, so I'm doing this. Um, hopefully you've been enjoying it. I hope you... Uh, if you were with us on Easter, we gave you a, a book. Hopefully you've got the book and um, you've uh, cracked it open a little bit. I think it's an easy read. For me, this was like during my sabbatical, my counselor um, at, uh, it, from Colorado there um, pointed me in the direction of this book, and it felt like he gave me a, a life jacket. Um, and uh, I, I hope it's challenging you and blessing you the way it has me. If you don't have a copy, I still have one. You can, I mean, I have more than one, but you can have a copy of the book. Um, we're just talking through the first four chapters. So the first chapter of the book is about the two roads, that there are two roads that we um, choose between in our walk with Jesus. Um, Everyone eventually in their walk with Jesus comes to a fork in the road. And the sign at the fork in the road has one sign pointing down one road says, trusting God. And the sign pointing down the other road says, pleasing God. And uh, when, I, when I was first presented with this, these options, but wait a minute, those are two good options. Like, what? How do I choose either trusting God or pleasing God? I want to be both. Uh, so most of us have spent our lives walking down the pleasing God road. There's nothing evil about pleasing God. Actually, it's kind of why we were made. But the problem with the pleasing God road is at the end of the road, there's this room called the room of good intention. And uh, we'll get into this more, but because everyone that is in this room is striving to please God, and we're all imperfect people, everyone in this room wears a mask. Because there is just no way you're going to be holy enough to please God. And so we feel like in order to stay in the room of pleasing God, I either have to be holy or pretend like I'm holy. And so everyone in the room of good intentions wears a mask. And the problem with wearing a mask is people love, uh, you can't accept love. People love your mask, but they don't love you because they don't know you. They can't see you. And it's exhausting to live in the room of good intentions. Everyone's tired of striving to be something and to put on a show and, and to, uh, to impress people and, and to try to please God. But there's, there's another road, right? Trusting God. And at the end of the trusting God road, there's a room called the room of grace. And this is a big, messy room with lots of messy people. No masks. Everybody shares their stuff. And I believe it's where we are meant to live. But there's something in us. If you're reading the book, uh, I'll, I'll get into this later. But I love the fact that the character we're following it, it doesn't, the story doesn't go, uh, he goes into the room of good intentions, he figures out he shouldn't be there, and then he goes down the trusting God road and ends up in the room of grace happily ever after. I love that it's real. He experiences grace, and he still, it just breaks my heart because it's my life. He experiences grace, and he still sneaks out and goes back to the room of good intentions. And so the battle in our lives, the struggle in our lives is not 
striving to please God. It is striving to trust God. So the first chapter, we talked about the two roads. And then this last week, we talked about two faces. Because there's our real face, and then there's the mask that we wear. And today, I want to talk about two gods. There is only one God. <laughs> yeah, don't stone me yet. But we create a version of God, just like you only have one face, but we have two faces. There's one God, but we create this alternative version of God. And uh, so today I want to talk about, about that. What's the real God look like versus the God I've made in my mind? And can I just say, like, uh, we've been uh, watching videos and discussing in small groups and stuff. And there's a temptation when we do this. I mean, I, I, I've heard it. Man, so many people in my life need this. Oh, there are so many people in the world wearing masks. Can I just say, when you say that, what I see over your forehead is mask, 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 mask. This is not for other people. This is for you. This is for me. And uh, just this week, I'm going, I'm coming to a place where it's like, I kind of, I think I prayed it earlier, like, Lord, it's not that it would be nice for me to live in grace. I, I need this. I need this. The people in my life who you've asked me to love need me to get free so that I can love them the way you've made me to love them. I need to be a real person again. I need to live in the room of grace. So I'm begging you, and I've been praying for you, that there would be a Holy Spirit urgency in us. We are not good enough. We are not healthy enough as a church. We don't love people enough. We need transformation. We need to be different. We need to be better. I need to be different. I need to be better. And as I'm going through this, the 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, talks about these people who can speak in tongues and prophesy and do miracles and cast out demons. I'm doing this material and I'm preparing and I'm realizing I've spent the vast majority of my energy on peripheral things. I thought, you know, if I can become a good speaker, if I can preach good, I could get people saved. I could lead a church that could change a city. I could just be a better preacher. Or, or if I could just be a better leader and communicate vision better and, you know, keep people running together. If I could... If I could just be a better leader, maybe I could, we could build something that could, you know, make an impact on the world. And I've spent most of my life dreaming about preaching or leading. And I'm now realizing it's all worthless. I think God's called me to preach and lead and all of that, but if I don't learn how to love, those things are ways you love people. And we, we have decided around here that the purpose of discipleship is love. In the world, if you were, you know, in modern times, the word that we would use instead of disciple is apprentice. If you're apprenticing with someone, it's for a specific skill or job. If I'm going to apprentice with a, an electrician, you don't say, oh, I wonder what you're going to do. What are you going to do when you're done? What are you apprenticing for? Like, we know what you're learning to do, right? And I think in the church, discipleship has become this ambiguous thing of what are you learning to do? I just 
be a better person in, in the pew. I don't know. We, and when does it end? We just kind of are lifelong disciples that we don't know when we've achieved anything. We don't know where we're... And here we have said, I actually believe discipleship has a beginning and end, and we're lifelong learners, but there is a point. Look at the disciples with Jesus. There was a point where they were no longer disciples. He breathed on them, they received the Holy Spirit, and he sent them out. He said, okay, you've got what you need, now go do it. Now, what was the thing they were going to do? I would argue this, that they were going to love. The Great Commission, Jesus says, Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. Well, what are the commands of Jesus? I think it was at the Last Supper, sitting with his disciples, he says, a new commandment I give you. What is this new commandment? Love. So I would say... The process of Christian discipleship is learning how to love. Unfortunately, most of my life, my discipleship has, learned, uh, has looked like learning how to do ministry. I think if love becomes the foundation of all of it, then all of a sudden when prophecy comes along, I'm not motivated by, man, I want to give some, I want to practice giving someone a prophetic word. I want to practice, I want to see a miracle. I want to pray for the sick. Instead, the script gets flipped and you say, I love my neighbor. I love that woman in the wheelchair who's a widow, who's lonely and depressed. I love her so much that I don't want to see her that way. What do I have that can help her out of that situation? Maybe a word from God. Maybe the power of the Holy Spirit will heal her. Maybe it's just fellowship. But I'm not, I don't want to be a prophet. I want to love my neighbor. And it just so happens that they need a word. And so I don't know if, I know that many of you were raised in the church like me, and maybe you're like me in that. You have inadvertently elevated the things of God, the ministry of God, above the heart of God. And discipleship has been about using these tools in an effective way versus gaining the heart of God for people and learning how to use tools to express the heart of God. And I have this urgency inside of me because I'm 40 years old. My life is halfway over, and I've spent half of it trying to be really good at this. So I figure I got half left to learn how to love. And I just... I'm praying that you feel the same. Like, can we just say, I don't know how to love and I need to learn how to love because this, I, I love this. I think this is a great church, but we are nowhere near where Jesus wants us to be in the area of love. I have yet to see an unbeliever come in and fall on their face because of how we love one another. That happened in the New Testament. People would come into a service and they would fall on their face, not because of how the church loved them, but they observed brothers and sisters loving one another. And they said, I've got to have that in my life. And I'm not there yet. Some of you are much farther along than me. And I'm asking you to join me in the room of grace and help me. Help me grow to love. All right. That wasn't my sermon. Let's start with the two rooms. Ugh. But that's the heart behind this. I hope you feel that. I hope you catch that. Um. Oops. I hope you, 
I hope you catch that heart. It, it honestly, it really does. When we, when we, when I talk with people about this, it just breaks my heart when I hear, "Oh, there's someone in my life that really needs this." Going, yeah, there is. It's the one you see every morning in the mirror. Like, do not shortcut what God wants to do in your life by thinking about how it could help other people. Let's get real with ourselves. Let's actually change. Okay, the two rooms. Let's talk about what's in each room. Um, by the way, if you're not reading the book, that's totally, you're not, not a big deal. Don't feel like, oh, man, I don't know what he's going to, I don't, I'm not going to know what he's talking about. So this, in the book, it's an allegory of this man on this journey with Jesus. And uh, he ends up at the two roads that I talked about, trusting God, pleasing God, walks down the pleasing God road, ends up in this room called the room of good intentions. But as he's walking towards this room, he describes it. And uh, he says he comes to this big, beautiful building, impressive building, and on the outside of the building, it says, striving hard to be all God wants me to be. And uh, he, he, he comes up closer. He said, yes, this is what I've been looking for. I want to be who God's called me to be. And above the doorknob, there's this little plaque, and it says self-effort. Makes sense. If I'm going to be who God wants, has called me to be, it's time to buck up, time to try harder, do better. And he's just imagining, he, he's opening the doorknob thinking, These are where, this is where the sold-out people of God are. These are the hardcore ones, the Nazarites who've set themselves apart. These are the passionate, holy people. I want to be a part of a group of people that are striving hard to be all God wants me to be. And then when he comes inside, he sees a banner in the back of the room. And it says this. It says, working on my sin to achieve an intimate relationship with God. And this just resonates with our hero because this is what led him to the fork in the road. He felt this distance from God. And he, it must be my sin. I've got to deal with this sin so I can get back that thing I had when I first came to Jesus. And so he's, he's in this room and he thinks he's found his home. But eventually he goes to the room of grace. And this is what he sees on the outside of the, the room of grace. It says, living out of who God says I am. And above the doorknob, there's another plaque, and this one says humility. And the banner inside says this. Standing with God, my sin in front of us, working on it together. I mean, you see him in front of you. This is like a no-brainer, right? Which room would you rather be in? And I think when you, when you hear this for the first time, you go, I mean, come on. Yes, let's live in the room of grace. This is so easy and so obvious. Striving versus believing. Self-effort versus humility. Well, maybe that one's a little less attractive, humility. <laughs> but uh, working for intimacy versus working from intimacy. And this is where I'm so glad that the book has our hero leave the room of grace and go back to the room of good intention. Because this is the struggle. I hear, I accept the gospel of grace, that it's not my works, it's his work. And I'm trusting his work not only to save me, but to change me. It's, it's this beautiful gospel, and then every day I wake up, and I go, Which, wait, wait, wait a minute. How did I get here? I'm in the wrong room. Why is grace so hard? I don't understand why this grace that is so ridiculously good, why anyone would ever leave it. But it, at least in my life, there is a well-worn path between the two rooms. And something in us drives us to go back. You look at Scripture, you can see it in Scripture. The Israelites, uh, they were slaves in Egypt. Pharaoh had killed their firstborn. 
enslaved them, told them to make bricks without straw. Horrific, horrific things happened to them. God miraculously and miraculously with real miracles delivers them. The Egyptians are chasing them down and they're trapped now. There's Egypt, the armies of Egypt, these people, not an army, no weapons, no nothing, and then a sea. God parts the sea right in front of them. They walk across the sea. The Egyptians chase after them. They get swallowed up in the sea. And I love that the Bible says that Israel watched their enemies wash up on shore dead. This all happens to these horrific people who were murdering their firstborn, a genocide, enslaving them, tried to kill them in the desert, And then they get hungry a few days into their trip in the wilderness. And they say to Moses, you know, we had three meals a day in Egypt. It it wasn't that bad, actually, if you think about it. I mean, these people killed your babies. It wasn't that bad. There's something in us when we get set free, we want to go back. I think maybe it's the predictability. Maybe it's the familiarity. At least there's a false sense of control that at least what I put in, I can, you know, determine what I get. Where grace is like, I don't get what I put in. I get what you know I need. And so no matter what I do, it doesn't change what I receive from you. I have to trust that you're going to give me everything I need. Maybe, maybe it's a sense of control. I don't know. But for me, I know this. There's a few reasons why I leave grace. One is I get the sense that I'm not really changing. This isn't working. This grace experiment, this idea that instead of trying hard to change, I could just trust God to change me. The minute I sin, I go, see, this this grace thing, you can't just sit back and let God, I mean, you've got to do something. This isn't working. i got to try harder, do better. Or there are times when I disqualify myself from grace. I say, uh, I, I really hurt someone, and I've got to make up for it. I really disappointed God, and... I think I talked about this last week. I, I do this, maybe, maybe some of you do too, I don't know. But I'll put myself in timeout with God, like if on a Sunday morning, if things aren't super smooth at home and I'm yelling and I'm angry and I'm whatever, or if I did, didn't have a good day on Saturday, and I come in on Sunday and I feel like a hypocrite if I just jump right into worship. So I'm sort of in timeout in worship. It's like, I can't, you know. I got to pay for what I did yesterday, and then I can worship God again. Like, God, I got this sin to, to deal with, and then I'll, I'll be back once I, once I deal with this. Because, you know, cleaning up my mess is the responsible thing to do. It's, it's called accountability. So I'm going to, I'll deal with this, and then I'll be back. I just got to, I got to fix this. There's a quote in the book that I just love. It says this, he says this, um, your view of you is the greatest commentary on your view of God. Your view of you is the greatest commentary on your view of God. So shame doesn't just distort our view of ourselves, right? Shame, shame tells me that I am uniquely broken. Guilt says I did something wrong. Shame says I am wrong, right? But it doesn't just change how I think about myself. Shame changes how I think about God, how I see God. Right, I, for, so like for me, it's not, it's not that shame causes me to think God's like mean and nasty and out to get me. For me, it's something like this. I know he's promised to never leave me. And, you know, maybe it was a promise he made a little too hasty. Like he hadn't thought of all the things I was going to do. But he's a man of his word, so he's not going to leave me. He can't. He said he wouldn't. 
but he's very, he's disappointed with me. He's not excited about being with me, but he, you know, he's with me. So let's talk about these two gods. There's the one I see, there two, the, we've talked about two roads, two faces, two gods today. Um, so there's the God I see through my shame, and then there's the one who actually is. And the God of shame, this is a lie we believe about God, is that he is distant. I, I think we don't learn more about grace when we succeed and overcome. I think we learn about grace when we fail. I think we learn about grace when someone fails us. Remember last week we talked about my sin being guilt, others' sin toward me being hurt. And guilt and hurt, they trigger this automatic reaction in our heart that God designed us. When there's sin or there's hurt, our heart says, danger, Will Robinson. Something going on. We got to fix this. There's something here that needs to be addressed guilt or hurt. So failure, my failure, someone else's failure, I think that's where we learn grace. I don't think we learn grace in a perfect, sterile environment. It's a painful lesson. It's at the moment of failure that I get to find out what I believe about God. Is he really big enough to handle it? Does this change how he feels about me? Remember when I talked about the room of good intentions and we talked about sin and we, we compared the room of good intentions, the banner in the back that talked about working on my sin so that I can be closer to God and then the room of grace that says standing shoulder to shoulder with God working on my sin together. When I blow it, my picture of this God of grace or God of shame becomes evidently Is sin something between me and God? Before you knew Jesus, the answer is yes. There was a great chasm between me and God, but it has been filled. And now there is nothing that can separate me from the love of God. But when I, when I have this shame picture of God, I see my sin as a mountain between me and him. And he's over there, and I'm over here, and it's my responsibility to do what I need to do to get back to him. After all, I'm the one that wandered away. So I need to come back to him. But here's how I, I think it looks when I leave the room of grace because of my failure. So I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with Jesus. His arm around me. We're facing my sin, working on it together. And you know, maybe you're not like me, but I have these sins. Like some of my sins are like, okay. Like, I know there's sin, but it's like, well, everybody has that sin. So, like, <laughs> like, Jesus knows I'm not perfect. I'm good standing with Jesus working on that, you know. But every once in a while, I blow it in a uniquely ugly way, a really bad one. And it disqualifies me, I think. I say, oh, Jesus, I can't stand here with you and look at this with you. And so I pull his arm off my shoulder, and I sneak around to the other side of my mountain of sin. And now, instead of me saying, Jesus, let's work on this together, I say, now I've got to fix this so I can be with Jesus again. And because I've positioned myself so that sin is now between Jesus and I, all my prayers, my Bible reading, all my thoughts are sin-focused. 
This thing is between me and the one I love more than anyone in the world. So every prayer is about my sin. Everything I read in the Bible is about how I'm going to overcome this sin. Every thought I have is about this mountain. The one I'm obsessed with, I am no longer obsessed with because I'm obsessed with my sin. And whatever captures my focus shapes my identity. Whatever captures my focus shapes my identity. And so as I'm worshiping my sin, it begins to change what I believe about myself. I can't see him anymore. I can't see my reflection in his eyes. He's so far away, I can't see him anymore. All I see is this mound of stinky, steamy, moldy, yucky sin. And it begins to shape what I believe about myself because I did that. What kind of person does that? What kind of person creates that? What's that say about me? I don't have this person whispering in my ear anymore. So what captures my focus shapes my identity. And just to be clear, my issue is guilt. So I'm talking about my sin over and over again. That pile in front of you, it might not be your guilt. It might be your pain. It might be the hurt that someone else caused in your life. For me, I tend to dwell on my screw-ups. But maybe someone has hurt you so deeply in your life that that is the steaming pile of stinkiness in front of you is this pain. And all it says to you is you're a victim. Imagine what life would have looked like if they wouldn't have done that. Imagine where you would be if they never would have said that or done that. And so this pile of hurt in front of you is prophesying over your life what could have been, but no longer is realistic for you. Because all you are left with is this steaming pile of hurt. But the God of grace is near. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In the old, the old timey, you know, like uh, some of the great healing movements of early American history and even, even back maybe 100 years or less. Some of, the, some of these amazing, powerful people that God used, they were very eccentric. And while God used them, I actually think they were a great sign of God's grace because some of them had the worst theology in the world. God used them. But they would, they would be, say things like, you know, the mood has to be just right in the room. Like, we have to play the right song. And God can't move. You, there's unbelief over here, and we got to get that person out of here so that healing can flow. And, the, like, everything has to be just right for God's grace to flow. And yet the Bible says that his power is made perfect in weakness. And I just wonder if, if maybe some of that that we've saw, seen in these heroes of the faith has trickled down into the way I see my own life in that, you know, like on a Sunday morning, if we're going to have a powerful time of worship and God's going to show up in this new way, then we got to really come in a certain kind of way. But maybe, maybe actually his grace is up for the challenge. And maybe the God of grace is near. 
The God of grace says intimacy isn't a reward for your good behavior. Intimacy is the only way to change your behavior. The God of grace says this. He says, you have as much God as you're going to get. He lives in you. You are in him. How much closer do you want than that? And the God of grace says this. I'm so much bigger than your sin. It isn't strong enough to change the way I feel about you. And by the way, if we actually think that we could change the way God feels about us, who's actually, actually the omnipotent being? If I'm the one who controls your emotions and the way you think and believe about things, who's in charge? The God of grace says, I'm not going anywhere. And if you'll stay close to me, I will whisper my identity in your ear and it will drown out the shouts of false identity shame tries to hurl at you. I always ask myself this question when I go through the Genesis story. Why was Adam afraid? What told him to be afraid? He had never seen God be anything but kind. He had never seen God be anything but good. No one had ever been angry before. No one had received judgment before. Those things did not exist. I think the fear may have come from this place of the unknown. Because before it was, God loves me, I love him. We walk together, perfect relationship. This was sort of the equation and the rhythm of their life together. And now Adam has thrown a monkey wrench into the equation. And there's this unknown factor now. Okay, before it was God loves me, I love him, we walk together. Now I have rebelled. What's What's the outcome of this equation? And then, obviously, we know that sin changed. It opened their eyes. And they see that they are naked. And remember that your view of you is the greatest commentary on your view of God. So Adam says to himself, my mistake has changed how I see myself. It must have changed how God sees me. And the mystery of how God would react caused him to be afraid and hide. And I think I do this too because I imagine God reacting negatively to my sin because that's how I would react if someone did that to me. And it's so hard to stay close when I sin because I want to feel worthy, like I deserve this place with him. That sense of I want to deserve my place with him. When I feel that, I've got my hand on the doorknob to the room of good intentions. Remember what it says above the doorknob? Self-effort. God has a plan for my life, a role for me in his kingdom. And it's my job to strive to become the person he can entrust with that role. Just like it says on the front of the building, striving hard to be all God wants me to be. And serving the God of shame causes me to put on glasses of self-effort. So I put on these glasses of self-effort. And so when I read my Bible, instead of seeing the promises of God as something he's going to do and work into my life, I see them as... as um, Commands that I'm responsible to make happen. And I begin to believe that self-effort is the doorknob to everything God in my life. Every God door in my life, the reason I'm not in that room is I haven't become the person that I should be to be in that room. 
I, the reason I'm not seeing blessing in my life, I need to strive hard, believe harder, do better, and then I'll be able to open that door and walk in blessing. But the God of grace values humility. This week I've been meditating on a, a simple scripture, but it's become so real to me. John 15, 5. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. 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 It's easy for me to accept the idea that I can't do miracles without him. You know? My brother and I are going to go to Uganda this summer. It's going to be amazing. We're going <clears> to <throat> help with some crusades. We'll see lots of miracles and deliverance and all that. We're going to minister in schools to thousands of young people. We're going to sit down, or we're going to get to uh, encourage and strengthen pastors, do a pastor's conference, and we're going to sit down with government officials and get to preach the gospel to government officials and all, all these things. And I'm, I'm believing God for powerful miracles. I want to see God do something powerful. It's easy for me to believe. You know, I, I prayed for a blind woman, and... In that moment, it's not hard for me to completely rely on God. Because I can try as hard as I want. I cannot make her see. Like, like either he does it or he doesn't. So apart from me, you can do nothing. I, I, I can believe that about supernatural stuff. What I, where I struggle to believe that is good works changing my heart, just growing up in, in God. I could probably do that. But apart from me, you can do nothing. On my best day, my greatest achievements are filthy rags. In this relationship with Jesus, I bring nothing to the table but trust. Nothing but trust. And humility is the thing that forces me into that place of trust. Either God's going to provide for me or I'm going to die. Either God's going to change this or I'm living with this for the rest of my life. God, I am incapable of changing you. And humility is required to stay in the room of grace. Because you have to be unmasked to stay in the room of grace. Being unmasked confronts my need to be esteemed by others. Because let me tell you this, when I take my mask off, there is very little left for you to compliment or to be impressed with. Self-effort credits self for transformation. But humility, in humility, God gets all the glory. And self-effort serves a God who is waiting at a distance for you to work your way over to where he's at. But humility acknowledges that the only way we'll be close is if he comes to me. Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, that word faith there is trust. It's the Greek word for trust. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I read this a little differently this week. And without trust, it's impossible to please him. Why? Because if I'm going to draw near to God, I must believe in the right God. I must believe that he exists. 
the one that I'm trusting. He has to be the God I trust. So, which God are you serving? I've got some questions, and then we'll close. Might turn along today. Do I measure my closeness to God by how little I'm sinning or by my trust that to the exact extent the Father loves Jesus, Jesus loves me? Do I see myself primarily as a saved sinner or a saint who still sins? When I talk to God, do I spend more time rehearsing my failures or enjoying his presence? Am I drawn to messages telling me I haven't done enough or those that remind me who I am so that I'm free to live out this life God's given me? Do I believe that one day I may achieve being pleasing to God or am I convinced I'm already, already fully changed and fully pleasing? Is my hard effort being spent preoccupied with sin or in expressing and receiving love from others? Do I trust disciplines to make me strong or grace to strengthen me? Do I read the Bible as you ought, you should, why can't you, when will you, or as you can? This is who you are now. Do I believe that God is not interested in changing me because he already has? Lord, we come to the table today. to correct our vision. But we have made you too small in our eyes. We have exchanged the God of grace for a God of shame. Lord, we've put this mountain of guilt, this mountain of hurt between us. We've ignored your word that nothing can separate us from you. The day we surrendered our life, lives to you, we died and were born again as new creatures. You have already changed us. You've given us your spirit that dwells inside of us. You've made us your temple. We can't be closer to you than we are right now. Lord, as we come to the meal, this beautiful meal of grace, would you, once and for all, fully satisfy our need to strive and our need for self-effort, and our need for a, a sense of worthiness. We trust that you have made the way.
And Lord, help us to never minimize your gospel of grace by discounting the transformation that you've done in our lives. Lord, I just pray as we come and drink the cup and eat the bread that it would be like a prophetic declaration over our lives of what you have done in us and who you are for us and who it is we trust, what you are like. Thank you, Jesus. that you paid it all. And now there's nothing that separates us. And there is no condemnation. We're free to live unmasked and unafraid. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.